Argentina could be set for an imminent political shift, with the country's main opposition party landing a significant blow against the ruling Peronists last week, winning key races in a congressional primary vote that is a strong indication of midterm results in November. Primaries are mandatory in Argentina, meaning that they serve as highly representative opinion polls, giving us a very clear idea of where voters are leaning in the weeks and months leading up to an election. Una derrota contundente se llevó el oficialismo argentino. In sports, they say that winning heals all wounds. And that could be true for politics too. That's why immediately after the results were released, rifts between President Alberto Fernandez and his VP Cristina Kirchner began to appear. Fernandez was forced to reshuffle his cabinet amid a tug of war between his group and more leftist factions of Peronism. He got rid of a number of allies, parachuting in Kitchenerite loyalists as cabinet chief, foreign minister, and agriculture minister. The president's short-term problems are centered around how he will retain control and influence over his own administration. Meanwhile, looking further ahead, Peronists are also facing an existential challenge, with polls showing that the dominant political force in Argentina is losing support among young voters. Can Fernandez avoid becoming a lame duck president? And can Peronism reinvent itself? My name is Gustavo Ribeiro. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Brazilian Report. This is Explaining Brazil. Alberto Fernandes' rise to power in Argentina came after the sudden collapse of center-right former President Mauricio Macri's economic program, leaving something of a power vacuum. Macri's biggest rival at the time was former President Cristina Kirchner, but her populist style scared off a majority of Argentinians despite holding on to a strong minority of backers. To overcome this rejection, Kirchner decided to take a step back. Instead of running for the top job, she threw her weight behind Alberto Fernandes, a former aide turned centrist critic. Un inmenso orgullo y créanme también lo siento como un reconocimiento político que lo es, por cierto. He would be the candidate and Cristina would run as his VP. Now, while this proved politically astute in the short term, with Fernandes cruising to election, it created a coalition that has proven very hard to manage, with lots of internal contradictions. All of this seems to have exploded after an unprecedented defeat for the government in the country's midterm primaries, one of the worst in the history of Argentina's Peronist party, which prompted Cristina Kirchner to openly demand changes from the president, forcing him to make sweeping changes to his cabinet. To discuss what is going on in Argentina, we welcome Ignacio Portes, the Brazilian Report's Buenos Aires correspondent. Ignacio, welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Gustavo. How are you doing? I'm terrific, thanks. So, Ignacio, how exactly did Peronism suffer such a loss in the primaries? And why is that so important? I mean, in Argentina, primaries aren't just primaries, right? 
Right. Primaries in Argentina are mandatory, so everyone has to vote. And they're also mandatory for political parties. So all the parties have to take part in it, even if they agree to a unity candidate inside the party or inside the coalition. So with vote being mandatory for everyone, primaries act as a nationwide poll of a kind uh, in which you can get a pretty good anticipation of how will the, the elections proper, the midterms proper in this case, uh, work out in the end in November. So, uh, for example, if you go back to 2019, when Alberto Fernandez won the presidential primary by a big margin over Macri, everyone just took it for granted that he was going to be the president. Uh, and markets uh, fell, and uh, uh, most people just saw it as a, as a, as a very uh, good reflection of what was going to happen two months later. And this time is the same. Uh, the primary seemed to mean that Peronism will lose in November. And as for the reasons for the defeat, uh, most people cited the economy uh, as the reason for what for the vote they were going to cast before the, the election. Uh, Alberto Fernandez came to the government promising to make drastical changes uh, in terms of the economic crisis that Argentina was suffering. He promised a lot of things that were very hard to deliver on uh, all of them together. He promised higher salaries, ending inflation, re and reactivating the economy, ending uh, cutting unemployment, stopping the run against the peso, uh, and, and so on. And well, the, obviously the context of the pandemic made it uh, much harder to accomplish any of those things. But uh, apart from that, even though maybe some people uh, could be permissive, uh, could be like forgiving uh, for for any economic sufferings due to the for part of the economic sufferings due to the pandemic, uh, the government has struggled beyond that. They, it has struggled to control inflation, promised that price controls would work, and they haven't. Inflation is still at 3% per month, above 50%, uh, and salaries are lagging uh, strongly behind inflation. So poverty has increased from 35 to 42% during Fernandez presidency, uh, and unemployment is up. And generally, there seems to be a lack of um, new ideas or new perspectives or new, uh, uh, any idea of the future, that the future will get better uh, economically uh, under, under Fernandez, which is like the opposite feeling that he tried to create and he, that he kind of managed to create during the presidential election. There's, there's a lot of pessimism about the future uh, now uh, compared to what he managed to create when he, when he was a rising political figure two years ago. So, Ignacio, you mentioned the pandemic. Argentina experienced what was perhaps the world's longest quarantine in 2020. And even if not everyone respected the rules, they were pretty strict. And still recently, President Fernandez found himself amid a controversy around a dinner party to celebrate the First Lady's birthday, which didn't comply with COVID restrictions. Does that also play a role in the vote or is the result more an economic thing? I mean, it, it definitely helped. Uh, it definitely uh, damaged his case, certainly. Uh, I, I, voters still say that the economy is the main reason, but I would say that the, the pictures of, of the party in the presidential residency certainly helped create a climate in which it was... Uh, very, uh, it was allowed to publicly criticize the president very strongly. It, it kind of broke uh, the spiral, of, a spiral of silence uh, among people who are not strong uh, enemies of the government 
maybe that always criticize him, but among the people who are in the middle, it allowed them to express everything they felt uh, against the government that one were maybe containing inside a little bit because of the circumstances, because of the pandemic, because of the, I don't know, the economic inheritance from Macri. Um, the, the pictures uh, re put him in a very hypocritical place after a year of insisting that people should be extremely careful, extremely uh, prudent, extremely generous in, in not opening their, their shops, not, not going to visit their relatives, losing money, uh, being at risk uh, of, 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 of not having the most basic things in life, right? He asked for big sacrifices and, and he wasn't doing them. So that's, that's, uh, that certainly damages him. And, and generally, uh, the president has, seems to have a problem of, of exerting presidential authority. Uh, he's, he looks like a bit of, a bit of a weak figure compared to Christina Kirchner, his, uh, vice president and former president and very important political figure in Argentina. So, uh, having uh, this opened the door for more mockery, for more parody of the president, for more, uh, looking at him as a, a bit of a joke, a public joke, uh, something to be laughed, scorned. So that definitely doesn't help, uh, uh before an election, right? And you wrote for our Latin America weekly newsletter that the Peronists might lose for the first time in a century control over the Senate. How consequential is that for the remainder of the Fernandez administration and beyond? In the short term, it means that uh, Cristina Kirchner loses some of, some of her power because she is uh, the Senate vi vice president and she has created uh, a place where the, the place from which she works and which from which she exerts power now is the Senate. Um, but uh, maybe it has it could have big, even bigger consequences in the longer term after those two years because a potential non-Peronist government could have both chambers to control and to pass reforms, which has never happened. And maybe for the time being, the government will struggle to pass laws. They will have to look for the opposition to pass the budget, uh, to, for a couple of, of guys in the opposition to, to join them to pass uh, bills. So it will be, it, it will make governability harder for Peronism, certainly. But I think the bigger, biggest change could be, uh, if we have a non-Peronist presidency, it would allow to pass all kinds of reforms that were never possible because Peronism always controls the Senate because of its strength in the provinces outside from Buenos Aires, especially in the north of the country. The results rocked the coalition, right? I mean, in the wake of the defeat, what happened next? Yeah, it definitely, it definitely rocked the, the presidential, the government coalition. They, they made, they had the worst election, uh, probably in the history of, of Peronism too. They just got 30% of the vote nationally. Uh, and obviously such a result is a complete shock. Uh, and it was a shock for, for the vice president, for Christina Kirchner, especially. Uh, so what happened immediately after the election was that Christina Kirchner and some others in the ruling coalition demanded the president to make changes, to make strong cabinet changes, to make, uh, to show some kind of political initiative, to start looking like a strong presidential figure, to say, okay, we made mistakes. We're going to change things economically in terms of um, the fight against crime, in terms of finding the pandemic, like show that you have political authority and that you will, that there's a, Uh, there's something that will change that we are addressing the problems. And Fernandez was uh, always his timid self, 
saying, okay, I'll do, I'll make changes, but maybe after November, we'll see, I'll, I'll study it. And, and Christina said, oh no, we need changes right now. So she forced, she forced his hand on Tuesday, two days after the, the defeat, all her allies within the coalition tendered their resignations, uh, including ministers of his cabinet, um, all kinds of crucial political figures. And Fernandez wasn't, President Fernandez wasn't noticed, notified about this. So he was in the middle of a, of a presentation. He was speaking in public, uh, and, and he found out, uh, someone told him that, uh, that, uh, that all his ministers, that all his, all the ministers that come from Christina's part of the coalition had just tendered their resignation. It was a bit like, like Bush finding about 9-11 in public, right? That kind of, what, what, what's happening? And, uh, and so he was completely shocked and completely blindsided by, by the news. For a few hours, it seemed like he was going to resist, uh, Christina's initiative, uh, to, to change the cabinet, but Christina doubled down. She wrote a public letter saying that she wanted this big changes that she wanted more economic spending uh, in the context of the pandemic that she blamed Fernandez for the defeat for what she said were his austerity policies. Uh, she called for a new cabinet chief. She even named who the new cabinet chief should be. She called for some uh, of officials of Fernandez government to be fired. He targeted his, his spokesman specifically, which his spokesman is very important because he was the one that is blamed for the leak of the pictures. And also, uh, Christina thinks that she's, uh, talking badly about her behind her back, uh, to the press. Uh, and, uh, in the end, Fernandez couldn't stand so much pressure. He feared that the government, that the ruling coalition would break, which was a reasonable fear at that point. If she, if he didn't coalesce to some of Christina's demands and, uh, 24 hours after the public letter of Christina Kirchner, he basically caved in to most of what she asked. She, he changed, uh, his cabinet chief, he changed his uh, foreign minister, he changed uh, a lot of, he, he fired lots of his allies from the government. Uh, most of the of the outgoing ministers in in the cabinet reshuffle uh, are for strong Fernandez allies. He also signaled that there will be some economic changes, although that's the least uh, clear part of the reform because uh, uh, Responding to what Christina wants would mean uh, opening a conflict with the IMF, which wants austerity. So that's the less clear part of the of the changes that Christina forced. Uh, but certainly, she forced uh, changes in her in in his cabinet. So can we say that VP Kirshner is the one actually calling the shots in the government now? Uh, a little bit. I mean, her, yeah, he, she definitely showed that she has veto power, right? Uh, more than more than at, at any time in the past. Uh, but uh, you can't exactly say that she has complete control of the government. Even you can see that the people that Alberto Fernandez put in 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 place of his own allies are not necessarily all allies of Christina Kirchner. Some of them are just Peronist governors, even right-wing people. Uh, some of them not. Some of them are from for closer to Christina. Uh, but uh, yes, her, her influence is undoubted. Uh, she is a more important figure politically than Alberto Fernandez in Argentina. That's very clear. That she she knows that the votes that that most of the votes are hers. Uh, she knows that it's her political capital that it's a stake uh, in Fernandez coalition. And she says, if if I'm risking my political capital with this government. I'm going to try to call as many shots as possible. Uh, so when when she's not heard, she starts to lobby 
to be heard. So Fernandez has some room to resist here and there and to moderate uh, some of what she wants and to modulate it in some in this way or the other. But uh, yeah, she has definitely uh, the most, she's at, at her highest point of influence in Fernandez government right now, for sure. Right. So, but these disagreements are nothing new in the Fernandez-Kirchner relationship, right? I remember reading about tension between the two of them just weeks into the Fernandez administration. Well, it's not. It's even not new within Kirchnerism. Uh, Cristina had uh, rebellions from their own vice presidents in, in, in her first term in charge in 2007. Her vice president ended up being part of the opposition, Julio Cobos, from the Radical Party, uh, voted against uh, a very important uh, tax, uh, foreign duties on 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 ta on, on exports on uh, agricultural exports in 2008. And this uh, sparked uh, a divide between president and vice president in Christina Kirchner's government when she was the president. But uh, she has promised now that she won't be like that. She said, I will never do what was done to me. I will never completely break the coalition, she said in her open letter. Uh, so, I mean, she is acting a little bit like she's uh, government and opposition at the same time. Like I won't break the coalition unless it's my way. A little bit, yes, uh, uh, but I think sh what she will continue to do uh, during the last two years of, of government is to continue to criticize uh, Fernandez here and there for uh, a few things, uh, especially the economy, uh, in order to preserve her political capital uh, as much as she can from a government that is suffering a lot, whose public image is, is, is going down. And uh, so she wants to keep some distance in order to when that, uh, whenever the government finally loses the presidential election or fails or has a spiraling inflation that starts to be catastrophic or whatever, um, bad things that could happen and end up happening, she can say, okay, you know that I always criticize this. I'm not, I, I named him because I had no other choice, but you know, I, 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 I always stood against the, the bad parts of this government. So she will continue to be uh, part of the government forcing changes, but also part of the, between inverted commas, opposition uh, criticizing it. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a political strategy. Exert as much influence as possible, but without accepting uh, all of the bad consequences of being a part of an unpopular government. It's, it's the two things at the same time. You mentioned that Cristina wants more public spending to counter the crisis, which goes against the terms of a deal with the IMF. What's at stake, economically speaking? Well, uh, Argentina, Economy Minister Martin Guzman uh, agreed in last year to a restructuring of uh, the debt with private bondholders uh, who uh, sold Argentina a lot of debt, like around $60 billion in debt during uh, Macri's administration. Uh, but there's still $44 billion pending to be solved from the IMF uh, rescue package uh, from 2018. Uh, and the IMF, uh, as opposed to the private bondholders, uh, has more explicit uh, qualitative uh, demands on what the government should do uh, before agreeing to a restructuring. They demand uh, specifically that you do, that you follow this or that economic policies before agreeing to restructuring the 
their debt. So they are demanding, although the, the, the terms are not known in public, the terms of the discussion, this is all press leaks uh, because they are, the government is being as secretive as possible about the negotiations with the IMF. It fears that they will be unpopular. Uh, but they are certainly demanding a little bit more austerity from, from Martin Guzman. And Guzman is, is, agrees with this a little bit too. He doesn't want zero deficit, but he wants a smaller deficit. And uh, definitely also less money printing uh, as, 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 uh, as um, conditions to, to agree to kick the debt that Argentina has to repay four years down the road. Uh, yeah, in the future, as, as he did with the private bondholders. But uh, Christina, at the same time, wants to jack up public spending to, to try to recover some of the popularity. So there will certainly be a conflict, but Christina uh, doesn't want to, to kick off Guzman from his, from, from the government. She knows that, uh, it's risky. She knows that it could trigger a run, another run against the peso and two years, surviving two years more with, uh, with another strong run against the peso will be very hard for her. So again, there she is between, uh, if she continues with austerity policies, it will be unpopular. But if she jacks up public spending, uh, it might trigger a run against the peso. So what she's doing is just complaining in public about uh, the situation to keep her distance with the with the unpopular government and preserve her political capital. We'll be right back. As you know, The Brazilian Report is an independent news outlet that lives off subscriptions, so you can support our independence by choosing one of our plans for the best content about Brazil in English. And if you have already subscribed, then you can also buy us a coffee with a small donation starting at $4 and going up to whatever your budget and your heart allows, you can help us refill our coffee mugs to continue covering Brazil. Just go to buymeacoffee.com slash Brazilian Report. Buymeacoffee.com slash Brazilian Report. So we're back with Ignacio Portes, our Buenos Aires correspondent. Ignacio, one cannot understand Argentinian politics without understanding Peronism. And there is a great quote from the man himself, Juan Domingo Perón, when he was interviewed in 1972 and described the country's political landscape at the time. He said that Argentina was split equally into three factions, radicals, conservatives, and socialists. So the journalists piped up, Mr. President, so where are the Peronists? To which Perón replied, well, we are all Peronists. So could you explain a little bit where Peronism comes from and how it took such a firm hold on Argentina and who are today's Peronists? Right. Well, th that phrase from Perón comes from a moment in which Peronism was extremely popular in Argentina in the 70s. Uh, after uh, 20 years of being banned uh, and uh, there was like a Peronist effervescence in, in the country and uh, Everyone was a Peronist in, in some way. And it's a very common thing in Argentina uh, to uh, hop back, hop onto the back of Peronism when, when you feel like seven, 60, 70 percent of the country is Peronist. If you're a, a right winger or a left winger, you start to 
pretend that you also are a parentist, of course, uh, but from the inside, then you try to to make the changes that you want. You you try to use, you start to use parentism to uh, liberalize the markets or to try to launch a Marxist revolution or to try to combat the communists or whatever. Uh, you just say, oh, yeah, I'm a parentist, of course, and then you you impose your political beliefs over that. Uh, so that that's that's happened a lot in Argentine politics. So I think that the, the joke comes a bit, a bit from there. Uh, what why parentism is so popular? Well. Uh, you have to go a little bit to the origins of Peronism in 1945, in the aftermath of the Second World War, and uh, uh, with Argentina uh, recovering uh, from from years of economic crisis, and now with a little bit of money to spend, uh, but with a very poor and very downtrodden working class after 10, 15 years of, of misery, really, uh, and hard work, uh, with no redistribution of, of money at all, uh, and after even more, uh, like a century, you could argue, of Argentina being a, a developed country, but with a lot of inequality and a lot of looking down uh, elitist um, views on the working class and looking down on, on over common people, uh, this coronel comes uh, to to power, comes to... Uh, he gets control of the Ministry of Labor in Argentina in 1943-44 and starts uh, pushing for uh, the, the, the reforms that unions always wanted, the, that the anarchist, communist, socialist unions always wanted in Argentina, the Labor Party. Uh, they always demanded, well, paid holidays, uh, better salaries, uh, the, the right to strike, uh, and so on. Uh, and Peron said, okay, this is a big uh, movement and this is important and I need to make these people part of my political ambitions. And so he, he joined forces with them and from within uh, the military, he, he started becoming like the, the nexus between the military and labor. He became this massively popular figure that uh, eventually, uh, also due to his um, his the military's ref refusal to to join the Allies in the end of the World War, uh, he, he wanted to maintain Argentina's neutrality. Uh, eventually, the 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 ruling classes of Argentina put him into jail uh, in 1945, and the the working classes that he had been building up as allies marched to the Plaza de Mayo, to the central square in Argentina, and demanding his li demanded his liberation. And in the end, he he was liberated, and he spoke from the from the from the balcony uh, uh, of the of the Plaza de Mayo. Thank the people for for freeing him, and then won the elections uh, in a few months later, and became the most popular president that Argentina had, and uh, yeah, in its history, uh, co completing all those labor all those labor reforms and uh, stimulating the economy and so on. And for for ten years, he was an, a very popular figure, right up to the in the last few years, not so much because there there started to be economic problems. And uh, he started to build a myth around uh, his figure. Uh, it started to be like a larger-than-life figure. 
especially when uh, he was ousted, ousted in a coup in 1955, a very, very violent coup in 55 with, uh, in the build-up to the coup, there was the, the, the Marine bombed the Plaza de Mayo. It killed hundreds of people. Uh, it persecuted every Peronist. Uh, there were uh, clandestine shootings uh, of, of Peronist sympathizers throughout the, the two decades that Peronism was banned from 55 to 73. Peron went to exile in Central America and then to Spain. And he started to become uh, this uh, forbidden but attractive uh, myth uh, that, uh, that reminded people of, of a time in which they were happier, especially the working class, but also uh, young people, young leftist people with students that uh, were tired of uh, military repression uh, and uh, moralism from within the military. Uh, Perón seemed to be, seemed to represent the answer to all of that. So by the 70s, when Perón came back, he came back with massive uh, Peronist support from Peronist armed groups who were formed during the dictatorship years and, uh, and uh, from, uh, with a strong support from unions too. So by, by 72, 73, as, as, which is the time when Peron says though that, that, that phrase, everyone or 60, 70% of the country felt like they were Peronists, right? And, uh, but uh, that government, when Perón came back to the country, uh, that government lasted very little. Uh, there were right-wingers and left-wingers within his coalition, and they started infighting very violently. There, it was a very violent decade in Argentina, and there was a lot of economic crisis too, and eventually it ended in another uh, even more violent dictatorship in 76, between 76 and 83, uh, with, uh, you know, uh, well, this is pretty well known, but uh, the, the concentration camps and so on in, this, in, the, in the 70s. Um, anyway, eventually, uh, Peronism returned to power, but uh, in a very different fashion in the 90s, being a, a, a right-wing neoliberal uh, reformist party under Carlos Menem, part of what we were saying, that it can take any shape or form, Peronism, uh, the 80s were, had a social democrat government in Argentina that ended in hyperinflation, horrible ending. Uh, and uh, per Peronism in the 90s was kind of supported by the union still, but in a very right-wing fashion of uh, let's reform markets, let's uh, open up to foreign trade and so on. And the final uh, form of Peronism is another return to the left in the 2000s under the Kirchner's. Uh, repudiating the, the Menem's, Carlos Menem's neoliberal decade of the 90s and saying, no, we should return back to, to government intervention in the economy, public spending, um, social security, uh, rights, uh, union, strong uh, union negotiating rights, uh, and so on. Uh, and strong uh, st uh, state intervention in the economy, state companies, uh, etc. Uh, so the, the, this last form of, of Peronism has been in, in the last 15 years or so a very a more leftist uh, Peronism again, but but it, it could still mutate, right? It's it's a very it's a movement that tries to 
keep its ear to the ground in terms of what's going on. Peron, Peron himself was a very pragmatic man, and he could turn right, turn left at, at any given moment. And so many of his followers have that same characteristic. They try to represent what's popular at, the, at, the, at any given moment in a country. So uh, we'll see if, if, if it adapts to the new climate and maybe turns right now. We'll see. You mentioned working classes and young people as traditionally strong constituencies for Peronists. They lost a lot of ground within these groups. What do the polls tell us? Yes, there's certainly, especially in this last election, it was pretty evident that Peronism is losing support everywhere, but also and most, most alarming for the Peronist politicians among their traditional bases, right? Uh, the, the base for Christina Kirchner's voters uh, throughout the last two decades was the working class in the, in the outskirts of Buenos Aires, the city is not a working class place, but the greater Buenos Aires is a very working class place, very industrial heavy, uh, very with lots of uh, where people go to look for to find jobs. Uh, if you are from the interior of the country, you go to the outskirts of Buenos Aires to look for a job. That's very common. Uh, so there was part of of their base and also in the north of the country, uh, which is the poorest area of the country, uh, maybe more conservative socially, but Peronism has no problem with that. It's very adaptable. Uh, but it's also very popular in the north. And the, the opposition made very big strides in all those areas. Uh, it won in six out of seven districts in Greater Buenos Aires. It didn't win in the most working class district of all in the, the, the south of Buenos Aires province, of Greater Buenos Aires, sorry. Uh, it lost there, but by a small margin, the opposition. Uh, Peronism barely held to that uh, working class stronghold. But in the rest of Buenos Aires, it lost. In, and in the north, it lost uh, quite a few provinces that it never usually lost. In Chaco province, Jujuy province, all very uh, rural poor provinces, right? Uh, so yes, and, and another interesting sign of the their loss of support among the working class which shocked many people was that in the south of the of Buenos Aires city, which is uh, a little bit of a working class place too, uh, the southwest of the of the city, uh, the most hard right candidate of them all, Javier Milei, had didn't had an even better election than in the richer parts of the city. So it seems like there's a new uh, discourse uh, that that is being that that people are finding attractive in the working class. That is not so much okay, we need help from the state, but I don't, I don't want help. I just want to have a job and win the bread for my family, myself. And I want to have uh, like personal dignity and, uh, and, and do things by myself. I just want the state of my back and that kind of thing. So it seems like we're having, um, a kind of paradigm, paradigm, paradigmatic shift, uh, in, in many people's heads. Uh, and candidates, uh, center right and right wing candidates are going to the to shanty towns to to places where you would expect Peronism to win, and and are doing rallies there, are uh, talking to poor people, and are, they are finding a little bit of of positive response there. Uh, both for both both the hard right and the center right are finding that they are making inroads right into places that where they didn't used to. They they sometimes they couldn't even come in right. Uh, they were, <laughs> they were. It was a hostile pra- place for them. So they are gaining definitely ground among the working classes and also among the youth. Um, uh, there, there's, there's. Uh, it's harder to to measure this in terms of the vote. But yes, there are there are polls that show that if you ask the youth 
what they think of the government. Their their view of the government is is growing uh, into a more negative direction. It's 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 it started it's it's countercultural now to to be to not be left wing, to not be progressive, to to start laughing a little bit about the progressive discourse because it started to be associated with a government that is not working with empty promises from politicians. So now uh, if you hear uh, some politician talking about how important it is that the state helps people and that it helps you fight the powerful businessman, well, you actually don't even have a job. So there's no business might businessman or boss to fight or uh, you have big problems economically and the government says, okay, but now we are, uh, our schools are teaching gender inclusive pronouns or whatever. Uh, you start to, to find this that, uh, it's not resonant with, with your reality, right? Uh, so the, the progressive causes are, uh, very distant to, to, especially to working class reality, but also a little bit to the youth. And the government doesn't really have a good answer to that. It's just, uh, it's losing its base to, to other, um, Alternatives, not just politically, but like culturally. It's a little bit like what happened uh, in the United States in the last years of Obama, right? In the build-up to the Trump years, it started to be countercultural to be to be right-wing. In Brazil, we have seen this invasion of American political traits and codes, both on the left and right. And Jair Bolsonaro and his supporters are a prime example of that because they reproduce much of the messaging of Reaganite rhetoric from the 1980s United States, in which they say that the state is not part of the solution, but actually the problem itself. Do you observe a similar thing happening in Argentina? Because this kind of approach may be tricky in country with massive poverty levels, such as Latin American countries. But still, you said something that struck me that workers think that they just need the state to get off their backs so they can thrive by themselves. Yes, there's a little bit of that. It's it's gaining ascendancy, that 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 discourse, that kind of Reagan discourse. And also, I mean, it's not the first time that it happens in Argentina. It happened in the 90s. Uh, the, the, the correct thing to say in the 80s in, in, among the middle-class intellectuals was, okay, the state, the state needs to help the poor, uh, the state needs to be uh, understanding, but the state wasn't working at all. Nothing was working. There was hyperinflation. They, they could give you money, but money worth, worth, was worth nothing. Uh, they could offer uh, free services, but services weren't working. So there was kind of a rebellion, a, a strange alliance between the very, very richest people in the country and part of the working class against, uh, the, um, uh, intellectuals, universities, uh, to, to just unleash right-wing capitalism into the country, which had massive transformative consequences, many of them negative. There was high unemployment, there was um, uh, high inequality, uh, and so on. But uh, also there was a period of capitalist growth, and some people benefited from it. Uh, so there's kind of a revival of that. Like The bad part of that has been forgotten. The, the, the many years ended up extremely badly with a massive financial crisis, the country opened up to extreme volatility from uh, global financial markets. Uh, every every crisis outside of Argentina had massive impact in Argentina. Whenever there was a problem in Russia, there was a problem in Mexico, there was a problem in the U.S., Argentina had a massive problem too because 
capital was scared and, and flew away from the country. And we had all kinds of um, crisis stemming from that. So the Kirchners were a reaction to that, to, okay, we're going to insulate the country from, from this um, crazy fina- financial world and we're going to offer protections to the working class. But now all this bad part has been forgotten again because we're again seeing the, the problems of the left, the typical... Um, uh, you know, state inefficiencies over promising the promising things that you can deliver. So what you're saying is like Argentina stumbles from crisis to crisis, shifting between the left and right in this never-ending pendular movement. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I, I, it, it seems like the like the atmosphere is welcoming the the cultural atmosphere is welcoming back uh, th- this. Uh, Reagan Menem 90s model a little a little bit again we'll see what final shape it takes right because there's opposition from the center right and from the right we'll see what kind of of of, of opposition we get or maybe Peronism survives in some way and adapts and in these last two years against uh, all odds it seems at the moment finds a new shape in these two years that they have left and managed to to continue in government somehow, but uh, like the final form of this reaction to to these years of progressivism is still to take shape, right? We still don't know what final shape it will take, but it does seem like uh, we are going into uh, an, a change of era, and uh, it seems like an end to this twenty years of the center left to left domination of the political discourse, and we're going to go in a right-wing direction for a few years now. Ignacio, thank you very much. Thank you, Gustavo. Pleasure. And if you like explaining in Brazil, please rate us with five stars. That will help more people find out about this show, where you can sign up to the Brazilian Report, the journalistic engine behind this podcast. We offer a seven-day free trial, no strings attached, which gives you access to the site for a week without the need to insert any credit card details whatsoever. I'm Gustavo Ribeiro. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Music